You are listening to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and video clips of these lectures online at edcorner.stanford.edu. Please welcome today David Rothkopf, who is the president and CEO of Gartner Rothkopf. He has spent many years uh, in this job uh, focusing on green technology. He was the managing director of Kissinger Associates and was also the senior trade officer of the Clinton administration. And he's been a very prolific writer. His most recent book is Superclass, The Global Power Elite and the World They Are Making. Without further ado and any more mistakes, here's David. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, and to talk to you today, I was looking over the list of speakers that you've got in this series, and I'm a bit of an aberration from this group, because although I've been an entrepreneur my whole life, and I am, in fact, focusing on green technology uh, in, in, in my day-to-day life, the subject of this book is a little bit off the beaten path of what you're talking about, because it's about how the power structure of the world works. And in specific, it's about the most powerful people on the planet, what they have in common, how they're different from power elites of the past, and how it's impacting our era. But, you know, I I think I'll take a slightly different tack than I normally do in talking about this, and I'll talk about it for a little bit of time, and then we'll have some questions and we can get into whatever is of specific interest to you. But I was thinking as I was coming over here that many of you are people who deal with systems design, others of you are people who deal with innovation more broadly. Many of you are involved in pursuits where there are regular uh, admonitions, as, as in, a, in, a, in, a, in a video that Tina just showed me, um, that, that you can change the world, that anything is possible. And we think that about really, really hard problems. We think that about climate change, or we think that about eliminating cancer, or we think that about artificial intelligence or other kinds of things like that. And we put our heads to really, really hard problems thinking that we can do what no one's ever done before in society. And yet, when you look at society itself and the way that society itself is ordered, we tend not to think that way. We tend to take as an assumption that the world is as it was, the way that power structures are is the way that they ever shall be. For 400 years, the world has been organized in terms of nation states, and the world will stay organized in terms of nation states, even though all the evidence suggests that nation states are waning in power, that they don't work in a global environment, that sovereignty is kind of like the invisible fence that keeps your dog squealing whenever he tries to run outside the, pop- the, the property, because nations are built to focus within their borders. And yet, many of the biggest issues of our time are in the cracks between that national power or of a transnational nature. And we don't have mechanisms to effectively deal with those. At the same time that we have this problem, which is kind of the breakdown of the the, the basic structure of society, there's a lot of evidence around us that suggests that the approach that we've assumed of the past 25 or 30 years, which is what one colleague of mine in Washington called essentially market fundamentalism, 
which is let's leave it to the market. You could call it Reagan Thatcherism, or you could call it Volcker Greenspanism, or you, out of deference to my friend Tom and the Nobel Prize winner in economics from the University of Chicago, could call it Friedman Friedmanism. I call it market marketism. You know, and the, and and the whole theory here is governments don't work. Leave it to the market. Two problems with this. One goes back to the original premise. We think we can do the really hard problems. We think we can cure cancer and solve global warming, but we don't think we can make governments work, even though governments have been around for thousands of years, very often doing very constructive things. That's a little strange. That's a, a bit of a gap, right, in at least our imagination and, 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 and certainly in terms of our aspiration. But something else has happened. And we now have enough data to look at it to see that not only are nation states waning in power, not only are our militaries waning in power because the cost of waging war is so high, but the private sector, often led by innovation leaders, is gaining in power. And that the private sector is not only gaining in power, but a few people within that private sector within the corporate world and within the financial world, are actually gaining more and more power every day. Because after all, what do markets seek? They seek efficiency. And how do you get efficiency? Through scale. And what does that mean? Power is concentrated. Resources are concentrated. Assets are concentrated. And that's exactly what's happened in the world today. So for instance, we've just gone through a financial crisis. Look at the top financial institutions in the world. The top 50 financial institutions in the world have almost $50 trillion in assets under their control. That's a third of all the assets in the world in 50 institutions. So governments are shrinking. You have a crisis. How do governments deal with the crisis? Well, nowadays, I talked to Tim Geithner, who's the president of the New York Fed. And I said, how do you deal with crises today? He said, well, my greatest power, because the intervening power of the Fed is somewhat limited, is the convening power of the Fed. The ability to invite the heads of the big organizations into a conference room down the hall or onto a teleconference and say, hey, guys, help us out here. Cooperate here. Or in the case of this recent one, who's going to buy Bear Stearns? And how, you know, how are you going to keep the cash flowing? And that's efficient. It's creative, but it's flawed. It's flawed in one sense because, you know, he sometimes invites a group of about 14 of the most important institutions. Lloyd Blankfein, who's the CEO of Goldman Sachs, calls this the 14 families, which is a kind of tongue-in-cheek reference to the godfather. Um, although, interestingly, when I give this speech sometimes, people think it's a reference to a lot of emerging markets around the world, which tend to be controlled by a handful of families. But you get these 14 families in a room, and who are they? There's some American banks, some British banks, some German banks, some Swiss banks, no Japanese banks, and no banks from anywhere else. Furthermore, not only is it not a representative group geographically, it's not a representative group in terms of the interests of the world. Because even if every single one of these guys was the most benevolent, far-sighted, noble individuals on earth, and it'll come as a shock to you, but some heads of major financial institutions aren't. Um, you know, some of them are just a trifle greedy. 
you know, just a little bit self-interested, they are legally obligated to advance the interests of their shareholders. That's what their role is. Their role is not to improve society. So, if you have a system of global financial non-regulation, because sovereignty can't extend into it, and you then must defer to convening a handful of the most powerful in order to solve the problem, and those people don't act in the interests of people at large, is that an effective solution? It, it, it may be a good stopgap, but is that the way that we need to manage financial markets going forward? Particularly when you think about the fact that there's 30 to 40 trillion dollars, for example, of derivatives where we don't even know what the risk is associated with them. One of the things that was mind-boggling to me about this recent crisis was that when you picked up the paper the day after, one of the reasons that financial executives and, and treasury figures gave for intervening was that the risks were unknowable. Now, not only is this a little boggling, it's illegal. The fundamental obligation of the, the regulations on financial institutions is that the board has to understand the underlying risk. And I run a group of, uh, called the National Strategic Investment Dialogue, which brings together big institutional investors. And when I talk to them, 90% of them think their boards not only don't understand the risk, they are incapable of understanding the risk because of opaque uh, systems of counterparties because of extremely complex modern security structures, because elements of the securities are stripped out. So, you know, we, we talk about new regulation. How about enforcing the old regulation? But even were we to do that, we don't have global reach. And so this is, you know, this is a potential problem here. And we see that in area after area, the, the, the people who have risen to the top have accumulated more and more influence over these affairs, and power has grown more and more concentrated. Some of you may be familiar with the works of the Italian economist Vilfredo Pareto, who came up with, at the turn of the century, the 80-20 rule. And the 80-20 rule is wonderful because it applies to everything. You know, it applies to dog racing. You know, 20% of the dogs win 80% of the races, and it applies to rabbit breeding. If you're any of you championship rabbit breeders, some, some of you over there are championship rabbit breeders. You know, if, if you know, championship rabbit, 20% of the rabbits win 80% of the championships or something like that. And it's reductive. You know, within each 20-80 rule, there's another 20-80 rule. And so there's a growing concentration of power, and that works in the world. The top 2,000 companies have 70 million employees. Those employees probably have 300 or 400 million dependents. So the CEOs and boards of those companies have direct influence over the lives of four or 500 million people. There are probably another half a billion people who are suppliers or distributors for those companies. So that's a billion people who are influenced by those 2,000 people or the boards and the power structure of each of these companies varies. But that's a lot of concentration of power, particularly we consider that in a planet of 6,000 people, of six billion people. <laughs> I live on my own planet. It's, it's called the planet superclass, and there are only 6,000 people there, and I'll take you there. Just bear with me here a little bit. But um, on a planet of six billion people, half of those people live on $2 a day. Never heard a dial tone. They're not even in the game. The, uh, another billion live on a couple of bucks a day, more than that, 
poverty or something a little bit better than that, really struggling. There are only a couple billion people on the planet who have anything like a decent living, and they report to 2,000 CEOs or their lives or their health care plans or where they're working or what assets are being allocated to them go to those people. And it's a very, very tightly knit group even beyond that. If you take the five largest companies in the world, you take their boards and their CEOs and their key managers, it's about 70 people. Those 70 people are on the boards or in the management of another 150 or so of the world's largest companies and 25 of the biggest universities. So there's a lot of cross-ownership and networking that's going on within these groups, and that feeds the concentration as well. But you see the concentration everywhere. You see it in military power. You know, there are a couple hundred company, uh, countries in the world, but there are only 30 or 40 with weapons of mass destruction. There are only 20 with missile capability. There are only eight or nine with nuclear capability. There are only three with a thousand planes in their air force. But there's only one that can actually wage a global war, only one that can really wage a war in space. And that one country spends as much money on defense as all the other countries in the world put together. And the alliance that is the principal alliance of that one country, NATO, spends 85% of the money that's spent on defense on the planet. And all 10 of the world's largest defense contractors reside within NATO. So military power is highly concentrated. No wonder that there are very few modern wars. But it, it exists in other areas, too. In religion, it exists. There are 4,300 religions on the planet Earth. Of the 4,300 religions, there are only 20 with a million members or more, and there are only two with a billion members or more. Now, that suggests that as scale plays a bigger and bigger role, and you know, we've seen technology play a dual role in all of this, and we can come back to it. There's a democratizing function of technology, but it's not always democratizing. Some people use technology to build global networks, build global reach, have greater global influence. And even in the case of the Internet, if you take Google and Microsoft and Yahoo and MySpace, um, that's about 96% of internet traffic in the United States through four or five big corporations. So there is even within this concentration, and you also, by the way, classic place to see the 80-20 rule is blogs and other places where we thought there'd be a lot of innovation. What happens is a few succeed and the rest are, are, are marginal. Not unimportant, but marginal. And so we have to see that they're both um, democratizing forces in all of this and there are amplifying, centralizing um, global networking forces associated with it that play to the benefit of those that have the concentrated power. Now, what is the consequence of this? Well, one of the consequences of this is that over the course of the past 30 years, we've seen an astonishingly rapid growth in inequality on the planet Earth. Now, some good things have happened from the growth. The bottom has gone up. Absolute number of poverty has gone down. In a, in a number of countries, you've seen real improvements at the base. However, the top is farther away from the base than it's ever been. In every country in the world, with the exception of two, India and China, the middle class has shrunk. India and China are sui generis because they offer scale. But even in China, with all the growth that's taken place, the Gini coefficient, which is what we use to measure inequality, has gone from something like 0.25 to something like 0.45 or 0.47. So it's gone up. It's gotten worse 
in China. And you see the same concentration phenomenon within wealth in the world. So the top 10% of people on the planet control 85% of the planet's wealth. The top 2%, the majority of that, the top 1%, 40% of it, the top 1,100 people on the planet, the billionaires each of you hope to become, those 1,100 people have assets that are almost double that of the bottom 2.5 billion people on the planet. Um, and there are a whole host of other examples where inequality has gotten worse. It's gotten worse between countries. hundred years ago, height of the robber baron era, height of what was seen as a period of excess, the richest countries in the world, the cluster of them, were nine times wealthier than the poorest countries. Today they're over a hundred times wealthier. Happened in Manhattan. The top fifth in Manhattan was once nine times wealthier than the bottom fifth. Now it's about 90 times wealthier than the bottom fifth. It's happened in the way that benefits have accrued to people. If you, if you look at the statistics in terms of income gains over the course of the past 10 years, the bottom 90% um, in America have gone up 2%. The top 0.01% have gone up 112%. Okay, you've seen it in CEO salaries. CEOs in the 70s made 35 times their average employee. Today, CEOs make 370 times their average employee. Last year, read it in today's New York Times, last year, to be at the top of the list of hedge fund managers, you had to make how much money? Anybody see it? 1.2 billion. 3 billion. You're undershooting by a lot. You would have been down in the bottom of the top 10. You had to make three or four hundred million to get into that group. Uh, you know, now, you might say, well, they deserve it. That's the way the system is supposed to work. This is terrific. That's the incentives we need. Well, never in human history have we needed those kind of incentives for there to be progress, because those incentives have never existed. And we, you know, we had some good innovations. The Renaissance comes to mind, you know. And, 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 and so, you know, you've got to ask yourself, as a systems design issue, is this the system that we want? Is this, what's the purpose of the system? What's the objective of the system? Because for a long time we've believed that the metric to judge whether society is successful is economic growth. And the metric within economic growth is sort of net, you know, net gains in, in, in GDP uh, per person or, or some other thing like that. But this relative inequality is what causes political tension. And throughout history, the story of, of mankind as elites rising up, overreaching, and then being brought back down. They've been brought back down in revolutions, they've been brought back down in innovation. In ancient Greece, the tyrants rose up, Solon and Cleisthenes came along, and they created what is the, you know, the forebear of democracy as a way of balancing out this power. Uh, it happened in China, it happened in the United States in the 19th century when the, the, the robber barons got too much and the trust busters came in and they, they pulled back. Well, what's the problem? Those all happened under the umbrella of sovereignty of a nation state or a city state or a principality. There is no global umbrella of sovereignty. There are no mechanisms to countervail. Now, I'm not saying you want to change it all, and I'm not saying that one wants to expropriate 
it all. But I am saying that we're inviting backlash, and we're seeing signs of backlash everywhere. Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad in Iran, Vladimir Putin in Russia. Uh, in the United States, we're seeing signs of backlash. The backlash takes many forms because many people associate these inequities and these imbalances with globalization itself. And so you've got you know, the absurdity of us trying to build a 700-mile wall on a 3,000-mile border which to me is you know, the great metaphor for our time, an exercise in futility, you know, where not only are you trying to keep people out against a border, but you're not willing to build the fence along the whole border, but what you're really trying to keep out isn't people, it's the future. You know, we're trying to legislate against a historical trend. It's like if you, in 1836, decided to hold a referendum in the UK, determining whether or not you wanted the Industrial Revolution to move forward. It's not an option. We can't opt out of globalization. There are technological trends that are irreversible in that regard. But there is unease. And that unease suggests that somebody is going to propose a solution to make the system work better. And that's what led me to say, well, let's look at the superclass. Let's look at this group of people. And so we came up with a definition that was a fairly simple definition. Definition was people who have influence over the lives of millions of people across borders on a regular basis. Three criteria. Influence over millions, has to be international, has to be ongoing. And we thought that we would take a look at this group and we counted it up and we looked at business, we looked at finance, we looked at the military, we looked at culture. Many of the leaders were from the areas of technology that you folks are working in today and we can talk about that a little bit more. Two, we came up with 6,600 or so people, which interestingly is one out of a million. One person in this group for every million people on the planet Earth. And we looked at the nature of the group. We sort of broke it down. We looked at the demographics. 60% came from one side of the Atlantic or the other. 60% came from business. What is the most egregiously underrepresented group on this power structure? Any thoughts? Who on the planet Earth, what group on the planet are the most underrepresented in this power structure? Women. Women. 94% of this group is male. 6% is female. So the majority population of the Earth isn't represented appropriately in this power structure. And, you know, even in countries where women are allowed an active role in the political life of the country, and I'm just talking now on a national basis, the average percentage representation of women in legislatures is 17%. Now, there are other things which may please you in this room, one of the few rooms that will please people. 30% um, of this group went to one of 20 universities. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, yes, this was one of them. But, but, and, you know, and I think had I gone and made it 30 or 40 universities, it, it, it would have been 50% of the group. Now that's stunning. 180 countries, 6,600 people, and a huge number come up through a few universities. Why? Why? Because that's where the networking starts to take place, and networking is one of the great force multipliers in this group. Um, that's where people are trained. It is not, apparently, however, where people are trained in terms of the ethics of leadership. Because this is a group which is 
woefully short when it comes to thinking about or acting upon the ethics of leadership. So that's something that comes up. And now you see other things in this group, other traits that are, di that are different from the past. More of them from the private sector. In the past, the international world was, the rel was left to the public sector. Uh, power is more transient. In the past, much of it was inherited. That's less the case. Now, to say it's more transient and people actually can get it by coming to the head of an institution does not mean that it's necessarily a meritocracy. I know all of you in this room like to believe in a meritocracy because, well, you know, that's a good set of rules for you guys. Um, but the reality is that, first of all, even in a society like the United States, which has the most mobility of any society in the world, or has historically, if you're born in the bottom 60%, there's only a 1 in 20 chance that you end up in the top 5 or 10%. So the, the likelihood that you can break out is very low. But if people were born in most parts of the world with the DNA that you've got, the energy that you've got, the aspirations that you've got, they're out of luck. Because just as gender is destiny in the global power structure, geography is destiny in the global power structure. And in fact, one of the big factors in this, which you're not going to hear about in an economics class in all likelihood, is the fact that luck is destiny in this to a large extent. And you will all find this. You know, my chief researcher on this book went to another university that goes with a different color of red than you guys do. Um, and uh, she had the misfortune of living down the hall from a geeky guy named Mark Zuckerberg. Um, and, you know, she was working my book, which I thought was, you know, pretty good for a 23 or 24 year old. Um, and she was reading in the paper every day that this geeky guy down the hall was now worth whatever, you know, at the time, two, three, five billion, whatever the, whatever the estimate was at the time. And all of you are going to have this experience. I hate to break it to you, but all of you are going to have people in your class who are less worthy than you who are going to be more successful than you. Okay? I'm, uh, uh, it is just one of the laws of life because there are other factors, you know, and often, you know, you'll see, I have a chapter in this book called Ceteris Paribus, and Ceteris Non Paribus, and that's because there is a phrase in economics that, you know, says markets and, you know, various components of these things work, Ceteris Paribus, all things being equal, but all things aren't equal, you know, that's the little secret, and the reason that we have created governments the reason that we seek ethical codes, the reason that we seek certain behaviors out of leaders that we wish that they would behave at a higher standard is because all things aren't equal and we have a job to correct those things. If the metric that we are going to use for determining whether or not society is functioning is not just wealth, is not just the creation of wealth. So, you know, those are some of the things that we saw. Now, a couple of other things, and I'll wrap up and then we'll turn to some questions, but a couple of the other things that we saw um, uh, had to do with um, the, the geographic location of these people. Because for most of history, it's been a transatlantic group. But by far, the fastest growing component in this group are Asians. Uh, if you looked at the Forbes list, 
The three countries that have produced the most billionaires last year, according to them, were Russia, India, and China. There's one Chinese rich list that says in the past two years, 100 billionaires were created in China. That's not the Forbes number, but it's, it's, it's another metric. Some of it had to do with what's clearly a market bubble in China. But nonetheless, we have to ask ourselves, what's the consequence? If this group has certain kinds of power, and by the way, it's not the power of conspiracy theory. You know, there are some of you who have come here, obviously, hoping to find out whether it's really the Illuminati or the Freemasons <laughs> who are controlling everything. And frankly, you know, I wish that those things, when Tina and I were growing up in New Jersey, you know, I heard about the World Jewish Conspiracy, and I said, that sounds good. <laughs> Sign me up. You know, there are not a lot of Jews. And I figured I could get a decent role, you know, doing something... <laughs> You know, not flashy, but satisfying. Running Canada, <laughs> setting world sorghum prices or something like that. But, but, but the reality is, <laughs> you know, it wasn't there. You know, and it's a pity, because I think that if it was, we could have done a better job. Um, certainly, we could have done a better job for ourselves. If you think of the Inquisition and the Holocaust and, I don't know, the music of Barry Manilow. There are things we, we, we could have done better. But... The reality is it's not conspiracy. What brings this group its power is that very often these very dif different, very diverse people find that their interests align. And when the interests of the most powerful align about taxes or about regulation or about politics or about global warming, they have, wait for it, more power than the least powerful people, right? And there is a multiplication that comes from the networks that connect them together. And so this is, you know, a, a, you know, an extremely important component of their power. Another important component of their power has to do with the byproduct of the networks. You know, I go to Davos every year, or I used to go to Davos every year. After writing this book, I don't know if I'll be invited back to Davos because, you know, I told some of the secrets of Davos, which don't, by the way, involve people going into a back room and planning, you know, France's GDP is going to go up and hemlines are going to go down. You know, there's not that kind of planning in Davos. In fact, Davos is a little bit like this. It's a kind of a big bloviation festival where people go into rooms to try and find something, you know, interesting out. In fact, you know, and, and very seldom do, by the way. I, I was talking to Steve Case, the founder of AOL, and he said, you know, one of the problems with Davos is I always feel like I'm in the wrong place. You know, that the real action is in some other room or some other hotel or some other quarter someplace. But when I'm, I come back, people say, well, what was the punchline? What came out of this? And ultimately, the conclusion that I reached was that Davos is the factory where global conventional wisdom is manufactured. That that's the real power of an event like that. That you can get a couple thousand really important government business leaders together and have them talk through global warming or Iraq or some other issue and have them sort of stick their finger in the air and say, well, he's a CEO and she's a CEO. Well, it's a woman, so she's probably not a CEO, but he's a CEO. You know, and, and, and they feel this way. So I'm kind of comfortable with that. And then they go back to their countries and their companies and they have disproportionate influence and they control means of influence. And that view becomes a more predominant view. 
Now you might say, well, wait a minute, that's not the same thing as running the world in secret cabals, and you're absolutely right, because the world's not run in secret cabals. What it is about is the real nature of power. And the problem with the real nature of power is that it's skewed, it's disproportionate, and the tools that we have historically used to balance it out, tools of governance, tools in which the consent of the governed is the criteria by which we grant legitimacy to such an enterprise, don't exist on the global stage anymore. And that's the real innovation challenge for our time. That's a much harder problem than solving cancer or, or, or global warming. And it's the challenge of our time because communities aren't defined the way they used to be. Throughout history, one of the big trends is the redefinition of the size of community. It has been, started out, how far could you walk? How far away could you, know, you conduct business? It was, a, you know, it was a walk, and then it was a wagon trip, and then it was a horse trip, and each time the size of the entity got larger and larger. Well, we now live in an era in which you can communicate instantly anywhere, anytime, travel virtually instantly anywhere, anytime, move anything anywhere, anytime, and that means that the definition of community needs to change, but we haven't changed it. We all have a different set of rules for the communities in which we live compared to the community of the world at large. We have different expectations and we need to change that. And then we need to reflect that somehow institutionally in enterprises that can counterbalance without quashing the things that work in markets that motivate people to succeed. And the reason I'm worried about this particular problem is that if we don't recognize that inequality is unsustainable and we don't move forward in this regard, then other people are going to capitalize on it. And the Chavez's and the Ahmadinejad's and the Putin's and, and others. I mean, you know, we had this wacky idea, blessed in academia 10 years ago, that we had arrived at the end of history that we had solved all the big problems of the world, even though the problem that had divided us for 200 years was how do you get the equitable distribution of wealth in society? And we had thought that we had solved those problems, but in fact, it's still dogging us. We haven't solved it. And this is no reason to believe that we live in the only time in the history of the earth that there will be one philosophy and another will not emerge as a competing alternative. And if one emerges as a competing alternative and we seem insensitive to these issues, it will gain strength. And if it gains strength and momentum and some people associated with this group see it as in their interest to ally themselves with that, we are going to have tensions and divisions in the world ahead that are unnecessary and unproductive and may in fact result in a substantial deviation from what your expectations are as far as your lives and futures and careers going forward. Now, I've just glossed over the surface of this book, which is 400 pages of well-turned phrases, <laughs> um, choice, pearls of prose, um, all substantiated with world-class footnotes. Um, and, 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 and so, I, you know, I'm very happy to touch upon a lot of different dimensions of this, but I think at this point, with about 20 minutes to go, what we really ought to do is open up to questions, and I'm happy to answer any question on any subject, even those that had to do with what I just said.
Yes. Why is Davos so much better protected than the Pentagon? Well, it's not. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. The question was, why is Davos so much better protected than the Pentagon? And the reality is that there are, I think, something like six or 8,000 Swiss police to protect a meeting of 2,000 people. So you do feel kind of secure there. But, yeah, well, the pen- trust me, the Pentagon is better protected than Davos. But, but, uh, um, <laughs> uh, but, 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 but having said that, Davos is pretty well protected. Um, what Davos can't protect itself against is irrelevance. And, you know, they're trying now to create a meeting in China because only about 2%, 3% of the people at Davos historically have been Asians. You can't be the World Economic Forum and represent yourself as the gathering of the leading minds on global economic issues if the fastest growing component of the global economy is not represented there. And so they're trying to make up for it. I don't know if they're going to be able to. I think fondue runs in their veins and somebody else is going to end up having to come up with the successor. Yes, sir? Now, how many of the superclass have you personally met? How many of the superclass have I personally met? Other than Tina, um, uh, I, I don't know, I interviewed about 150 for the book, and I probably, you know, I, I've had this checkered career, as Tina indicated, where I worked as a hot official in the Clinton administration, I worked with Henry Kissinger, I worked in some businesses. I, I, you know, I've met a bunch of these people. Um, and, you know, to, to save you the obvious next question, which I always get, I'm not a member of this group. No one who is as concerned as I am about his daughter's college tuition could be a member of this group. And the rule of thumb that you should use, and by the way, 6,000 is a fairly arbitrary number. You could come up with 60,000. You could come up with 600,000. It would still be insanely disproportionate. There are 90,000 people on the planet Earth who have uh, liquid financial assets in excess of $30 million. So there's a tiny community of people who are that disproportionately wealthy. And that could be your criteria. There could be other criteria. I just picked one like this because it enabled me to sort of look at it and walk around it and kick it a little bit. Yes, sir. Uh, one, one thing that's shocking when you come to the US is um, you see a huge amount of homeless people. And there are 47 uh, million, I was almost saying billion, but 47 million that don't have health insurance. And when you compare that with Scandinavian countries, there's a much there's a different kind of income distribution. Do you see a better income distribution happening in the United States? Is that possible, or do you think it's Well, the question is, you see homeless people in the United States, and you see 47 million people without health care in the United States, and you see sometimes better kinds of income distribution in Europe, Scandinavian countries. And, and, and the answer is, you know, that's true. Um, partially it's true because they're smaller countries and easier to manage. Partially it's true because there is a European belief in the role of government that's different from the U.S. belief in the role of government. And by the way, this has benefited Europe in a number of ways. You know, for much of the time I was in the Clinton administration in the 90s, I heard, in fact, one very senior official, uh, cabinet official, uh, who later went on to run a, another university briefly, um, but I don't want to give away any names, um, uh, who once said, you know, Europe is a museum. You know, they, they, they've, they, they have not created a job in 20 years, and nothing new is coming out of there. Well, I think the reports of Europe's demise are premature. Can I just say one 
but well, well, I was going to get there. Even without your help, I was going to get there. <laughs> Denmark is doing well as an economy. Sweden has grown at four and a half or five percent for the past couple of years. Denmark gets almost twenty percent of their power from wind. Sweden has decided that they will be petroleum-free by 2020. Europe is leading on green technology because there has never been a green technology that has successfully taken root without government subsidies and government intervention. Because that's what's been necessary so far, partially because traditional energy markets, another secret even though this is being podcast, they're not really markets. It's not a market if the people who set the prices and the people who set the production levels are the same people. You know, the supply and demand thing is thrown out of whack in this thing, and they have been able to move their prices to suit their sort of economic hegemony over energy markets for a long time. But Europeans have said, no, there's a different approach, and they are leading in biofuels, in wind, in, in next-generation biofuels. They're not suffering from some of the problems that we're having in the United States, and so forth. So I think that one of the possibilities is this European model may end up as a resurgent model and could be blended with a Singaporean model, a Chinese model, where there is a somewhat larger role for the state and, um, and you know, there is a different conception about the role of the individual in society, which some people here may go up in arms about. But if you project out these numbers, you have to give that a real shot. Yes, sir. Could you talk a little bit more about why you think countries in Europe, like Germany, for example, are so far ahead of us with alternative energy, besides just government subsidies? What does the US need to do to catch up? Well, first of all, it's not, I mean, you say, well, can you please explain this, uh, but eliminate the thing that you think is most important? Um, well, I mean, <laughs> You know, you have to have a favorable environment, and government subsidies and policies uh, which mandate the use of certain things and, and penalize the use of other things obviously play a big role in that. I think that can happen in the United States. I think it's going to happen in the United States. You've got three candidates for president right now, all of whom have committed to making climate change a priority and breaking with the, the policies of the past. The problem is that in the United States, policy is made by a special interest free-for-all that gets us the kind of insane policies like the last energy bill, where we set a goal of 36 billion barrels of ethanol, much of which is made with technologies that don't even exist yet, and some of which is made with technologies that we know are lousy. And at the same time as we do that and set that impossible goal, we undermine and undercut and eliminate subsidies for wind and solar, which is, you know, it's nuts. Why does that happen? It happens because it's all about a special interest tug of war in a system that we have allowed to become operated by and saturated by and corrupted by money. And, you know, let's just, I mean, this whole elitism debate in the paper in the past week is hilarious because you've got you know, one guy who's being accused of being an elitist because, uh, despite the fact that he was raised by a single mother on, on, you know, on, on welfare or food stamps or whatever, because, you know, he went to Harvard, which is, you know, one strike against him, and 
uh, you know, he was at the home of a billionaire raising the kind of money that you need to, and that's why you need billionaires. But he was accused of being an elitist by the heir to a family political dynasty that's made $100 million in the past seven years, and by another guy who got his job the old-fashioned way because his father and grandfather were four-star admirals in the Navy and helped get him into the Naval Academy, and they're trying to replace another guy whose father was president and whose father was a senator and who himself is a multimillionaire in a country where 40% of the members of the Senate are millionaires and 30% of members of the House are millionaires, and you can't get elected unless you raise $100 million, which means that prior to all the primaries we're talking about now, there's a money primary in which essentially the rich people get to determine who's actually viable enough to run to go into Washington and operate a government where the real problems are at the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue because the Congress is running for office more often, needs money more often, is therefore more dependent on these corporate interests, and on top of that throws in the wild card of 40% of them never having a passport. You know, so we're supposed to lead the world with a bunch of you know, comparatively corrupted guys who can't find out where we are on a map. Which, by the way, is true. I talked to a general who took Denny Hastert to the Persian Gulf three years ago when Denny Hastert was the Speaker of the House of Representatives, and they were in the middle of a briefing, and Hastert, I repeat, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, stopped the commanding general from CENTCOM and said, look, before you go any further, can you show us where we are on a map? So, so, you know, well, look out below. Yes, sir. Can you speak uh, about the power dynamics in this elite class? And very clearly, as because more and more, you said Asians are coming into this elite class. Well, I think the power dynamics are constantly changing. It's an evolving group, and the power dynamics differ. You know, within say finance or within leadership of the corporate world or between the corporate world and the government world in terms of the kind of influence that's weighed. And you see it manifest itself in lots of different kind of ways, whether it's in alliances within industries uh, or people who are using power in one sector to cross over. We have this week the example of Silvio Berlusconi, an Italian billionaire media mogul who has returned himself to office as the Prime Minister of Italy. We have the wonderful example of Roman Abramovich, who is a Russian oligarch who uh, lives much of the year in London where he owns the Chelsea Football Club, but some of the year he is the governor of a province in Siberia. How do you do that? Uh, you know, one of the things <laughs> that is talked about in the context of this group is it very frequently, and many of them themselves say it, uh, is uh, that... that um, it's a, you know, they, they, I call it the small world phenomenon. You know, I talked to Steve Schwartzman at, at Blackstone. He said, I can pick the phone and in two phone calls get to anybody in the world. And that there are only 20 or 30 or 40 people who really matter in global finance. And if you go area to area, that small world phenomenon kicks in and is an, is an important part of the dynamic. I think the rise of Asians to, into this group is going to be quite significant. And I think it may be most significant in terms of this agenda-setting function. Because the values are different. Now, you know, the, the predominantly Western value comes from a proselytizing tradition where pro progress is measured by how European you make things or how American you make things. 
And there is a different view in, in Asia. And I talked to a guy, Kishore Mahubani, Mahubani who is the uh, head of the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Affairs in Singapore, and was an ambassador here. And he said, you know, for most of my life, I would go into a room in Asia, and I would talk to senior Asian business leaders after the Americans had left the room. And whatever the disagreements they had with America, and where they, whether they were from China or from Japan or from Korea, wherever they were from, at the end of the day, I had the sense that this group of people in Asia measured progress of civilization by how they approached U.S. society, by how they aspired to that goal. And he said, five years ago, that ended. And I said, well, what was the thing that ended it? Was it Iraq? And he said, it was Guantanamo. It was Abu Ghraib. It was the fact that the ideological high ground had been lost and that the United States, you know, the sort of the emperor was seen to be wearing no clothes. And, and, and so that leaves a bit of a void there. And how does that evolve? Well, one, you know, it's, it's got to be better if the system is more representative of the people on Earth. But the potential problem with this is that a lot of countries in Asia have a different view about the role of the individual versus the state. And a lot of countries in Asia have a different view about the way states relate to one another and are saying, well, look, I'm perfectly happy to do business with you, Sudan. I don't really care what's going on in your country. And if that becomes the predominant view within this elite, if the needle moves a little bit, how does that affect global affairs? And, you know, I think we have to stop and ask ourselves, how do, how do we feel about that? And, you know, how much will the rise of these Asian groups into this group change them is another, you know, important and interesting question. It's early days, but the one thing that we have to know is if the, the, the economic wealth is being created faster there and therefore resources are accumulating there and more power is accumulating there, then it's quite clear that they're going to change the nature of this small community of global leaders. So, do we have five more minutes? Yes, sir. How optimistic are you that we'll see structural change within our lifetime? Uh, I'm optimistic that we'll see structural change within the year. I think what we're going to see is lots of incremental change. I think you're going to see new regulations in global financial markets. I, you know, I don't think we're going to, you know, sort of convene the Continental Congress or the Intercontinental Congress of, you know, 2076 and create a new hierarchic structure that's going to sit atop the world government. I think we're going to have networks of uh, governance structures that pertain to individual areas from the, the, the very, very narrow, like ICANN, out into the broader. I'm quite optimistic that climate change is one of the things that's going to motivate this change because it's one of the areas where you can't survive with a coalition of the willing. You really need everybody to participate. And you need global mechanisms to drive it. Um, and, you know, net-net, um, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of optimistic guy. You know, I mean, progress works. We live at the best time in the history of the world. We live longer lives. We have access to more information. The world is wealthier. People are better fed. There's more medicine. You know, so we face challenges and we rise to the challenges. And, you know, what I began by talking about, that this was a challenge that's worthy of the same kind of creativity and application that some of the narrower scientific and technological challenges that you sometimes talk about are, um, is, is not just true, but I think it's, I, I, you know, I believe that, that people will rise to the challenge and, and that we will make some progress, but it's going to be in fits and starts, 
And it's not going to be helped by the fact that the world is divided into camps of internationalists versus nationalists or globalists versus anti-globalists. And, and we've, we've got to move past that false debate. Globalization's happening. The question is, what are you going to do with it? And how are you going to make it work better? And, and the, you know, that's, that's you know, to me, uh, the critical question here. Yes, sir. Um, my question is, uh, so in the globalization scheme, let's say we place more and more regulations on how the uh, markets operate, how do you avoid uh, sort of recreated in 1984 by George Orwell, you know, where basically the governments are holding the market and the people hostage? Well, the question is, how do you avoid 1984 by, you know, strengthening government? That is a, an example of reductio ad absurdum, right? I mean, that is essentially saying, well, if you're going to strengthen government a little because it's too weak now, how do you avoid making it so that it's too strong? Well, you do it by avoiding that. Um, I mean, you know, you have to put in checks and balances. We know how to put in checks and balances. The point is that we can't say, oh, I can solve any problem in a, in a private sector. I can solve any problem in a company. I can take two failing companies and put them together and make them work. But nobody can make government work. Government is always going to be inefficient. Government's always going to be a burden. That's been our attitude, you know, that, that, that government is bad. And, and we just can't do that. And, and I think we do know how to make checks and balances. Yes, ma'am. Um, for example, you see like Asian or China is the emerging market. So, if you have the opportunity, will you extend your business? Well, my, my, first of all, the question was how, do you, how have I started my businesses? And, and the answer, because I'm not a member of the super class, is don't take notes. But, you know, I, I, I've, done, I've done all right through my life by, you know, being too stupid to know that I shouldn't start a company in this area and trying to, you know, sort of proceed where there was an, an idea and, 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 and run it down. My, you know, I think one of the wonderful things about this era is I have a company. It's got offices in Washington and New York. It's got a, a fairly modest-sized staff, and we've got, a, you know, sort of affiliates around the world. But we're operating on every continent. We have clients on every continent. That's what's changed. You know, that's, that's the miracle of the world today. You know, you go where these opportunities are. And frankly, you know, this green energy revolution or the intersection of, of, of new energy technologies and the climate change uh, imperative that we face... Um, affects every place in the world in vitally important ways. And in fact, I think the linchpin issue in that is whether the United States and China can resolve um, to, to address burden sharing in a way that's mutually acceptable. Because the emerging world is not going to follow them. Uh, it's not, not going to follow us unless they go. And, and, and we are being asked to play the lead in the developed world. And so I think you know, the, the, how the Chinese address these issues is going to be absolutely dispositive from a policy perspective, also from a technology perspective. Uh, I totally believe that, you know, while we've spent a lot of time focusing on renewable technologies, if they're as successful as they possibly can be, it's 8, 10, 12 percent of the problem. And the remaining, you know, 80 plus percent of the problem is traditional energy sources. And that means coal. You know, at the end of the day, in China, that's the most abundant energy source. And so the question is, how do you do that clean? Because while people are concerned about climate change, 
survival is a, is a, is a paramount concern above that. And people are going to say, well, I've got to take what's nearby. I'm going to take what I can afford. I've got to keep my society stable. This is how I keep my society stable. And so I think the needs in parts of the emerging world are really going to drive the decisions that are taken elsewhere in the world on some of these issues. We've got time for one more question. Go ahead. Uh, for a moment, focusing just on the U.S., uh, you had mentioned the ever-increasing gap between the rich and the super-rich and the lowest 20%. And that's been a trend that's been going on. Do you see that trend as leading to social unrest? Historically, many people have felt that when that trend continues and reaches some tipping point, social unrest is one of the consequences. Well, it certainly could lead to social unrest. I think it's, leading, it's going to lead to political divisions, and I think you hear it even in this race. I think there is a sense that over the course of the past seven or eight years particularly, the government has played too much to one side of the equation and not enough to the other. I think you will start to see people addressing some of these issues. The problem is, you know, such as CEO salaries or, or, or changing regulatory structures so that we avoid certain kinds of financial issues, the problem is that national government can only go so far on some of this and that it's too easy for businesses to relocate, to play governments against one another. It's too easy to move outside of the regulatory umbrella of one particular state. And thus, people can change their venue and keep their compensation structure or go to the place where the margins are greater and, and play the whole world for that game. So it's going to be hard for any one country to do it. So I think, I, whereas in some places social unrest may be the result, I think it's, it's more likely that more broadly what you're going to see is political tension and enhanced political tension and the empowerment of organizations and peoples and leaders who are offering an alternative view. Okay. Do we have a 10-second question? Yes. Okay, why don't you both ask your question and I'll answer both of them or I will answer the one that I like better. How do you explain the fact that most of, most, like a substantial amount of, you know, the richest people on the planet, the billionaires, come from middle class or even like lower class. They want like raised for like rich families. Well, I mean, first of all, one of the thi one of the dimensions of progress in our time is that more people have done that. Certainly, not most of them, but many of them have, and certainly that's a sign of of progress. But those people follow a fairly narrow path. And even if a few people have that chance to go to the excessive extreme, the question is, why are the middle classes shrinking? Why are the poorest falling farther and farther behind? And so, you know, I, I don't think we should sort of pat ourselves on the back by saying this poor guy or this middle class guy became a billionaire. Because that's not solving the problems of opportunity in the world. That's solving that guy's problems of opportunity. Um, and, and we need to move to a broader uh, array of things. Anyway, this has been terrific. And I thank you very much for the opportunity to be here.